Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. In my own mind, I've been trying to come up with titles <laughs> for evening talks like this, uh, just to help me stay focused, uh, and I didn't come up with one <laughs> for tonight. Um, but there are some themes that I've been thinking about, and I hope that um, uh, in expressing them, um, this can also be a forum for discussion as well. So as I'm speaking, if something that I'm saying um, trigger something that you want to uh, comment on or a question you might have, then this is democratic. So feel free to uh, just put up your hand. And uh, thank you for coming here tonight. I know that um, Green Bay is busy tonight. And Barack Obama is speaking tonight. Not far from here. I may have a few things to say about that also. <laughs> um, I'd like to start with a little uh, passage from the Chan tradition of Buddhism. Um, Chan is the tradition of Buddhism that uh, arrives from India to China, which then later goes to Japan and becomes what we know around here as the Zen tradition. Um, it goes like this. Great doubt, great awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. <laughs> Great doubt, great awakening. Now, this isn't usually how we begin talking about spirituality, and it's certainly not how we begin talking about religion, especially since most of us think about religion as a kind of set of beliefs or a mythology or a certain kind of uh, pattern of storytelling that helps us have faith and gives us a sense of meaning in our lives, our, in terms of our place in the world, our relationship to each other, our relationship to the natural world, our relationship to the human-built world, 
and to the non-human world, extending all the way from blades of grass to animals and deities wherever they may reside, if they do or if they don't. Um, I pick this passage because it's characteristic of a different mode of approaching spirituality. And it's a mode that begins with a uh, profound interest in the great existential questions that arrive just from having been born and from recognizing that we all are going to die. You all have an expiry date. You don't know when it is. Maybe that's the most unknown thing in our lifetime. Um, we're also living at a time that a philosopher would call a postmodern, secular time, where we also have a distrust of the grand narratives like umbrellas or great canopies that seem to just make sense of everything. This is how the world was created, or this is how the world was created. This is what's going to happen when you die. There is an omnipotent God like Santa Claus who is going to punish you if you've crossed certain boundaries. And at Christmas time, you will be rewarded or punished, as the case may be. Um, and this quote, I think, captures something quite different, which is this sense that one's awakening is actually related to one's bewilderment or one's doubt. And again, from the Buddhist tradition, one of the stories that I think really touches this um, notion of doubt or bewilderment is the story of the evening when Gotama leaves his palace before he becomes the Buddha. He leaves his palace, he leaves his son and his family, and he gets taken by his charioteer through the town in the night. And he sees three things that shake him to the core. The first experience he has is he's looking out of his chariot and he sees somebody who is old. And following that, he sees somebody who is ill. And then immediately after that, he sees a corpse. So these three visions, which are not visions in the sense that we're used to hearing of the great spiritual figure finally having a vision, he sees something that we've all seen. The truth of aging, the fact that because we're in a body, we're going to become ill, and that we are going to die. And when he sees these three people, these three experiences, he turns to his charioteer and he says, does anybody know what he says? He says, does this happen to everybody? 
Or in another translation, is this going to happen to everybody? If we listen with our intellectual mind, we say, well, obviously. But in our heart, when we really look around and we look deeply and we listen deeply, we start to see that the nature of things is highly provisional, that we're here for a short time, our life is quite fleeting, that all of the things that we're connected to are changing and ultimately impermanent. And if we open to the profundity of that notion, it's a visceral kind of questioning that begins to happen. And certainly some bewilderment arises. What I'd like to tease out of this is that the depth and the intensity of our questioning or our doubt, the depth and intensity of our doubt is directly related to the depth and intensity of our insight. The quality of your bewilderment is actually related to the quality of your awakening. Does this make sense? But most of the time we don't allow ourselves to drop in to these kinds of questions because it's much easier to go shopping, to fill ourselves up with food and with capital and with romantic love and with house renovations and so on. And doesn't this happen sometimes? We, we get struck by some kind of doubt or bewilderment and then there's an answer there for us. And maybe the answer comes in a package like the great myths that religion offer us so that we can find some solace. Well, the tradition of yoga has always been a tradition that has left the patterns of organized answers. Because there's a sense that doubt, and I don't mean the kind of way we use doubt often in our culture as kind of like personal doubt or self-judgment, but the existential sense of doubt that can impact us. Um, is actually the beginning and also the fuel for our practice. And that sometimes having answers to some of the great questions we have about what to do with our lives, how to do it, how to serve, um, how to have a, an ethical livelihood, um, how to balance being a householder and having spiritual practice. Um, sometimes the answers that we find actually can numb the questions. And so in the yoga tradition, there's always a kind of return to these basic questions as a way of keeping the question alive in your life without going for the quick answer 
the quick pill of theology or of storytelling that we all want. I mean, don't we want a kind of story about our lives that can make sense of things? And then don't we often confuse the story that we've created for how our life actually is? I mean, how much time have you spent just today creating a meaningful narrative about your life? Or something new happens and you figure out how to fit it into the story that you've already got going about your life. So, prior to this story that I told you about Buddha's life, which of course is not historically, we have no historical evidence that this happened, but is a kind of archetypal story that is also the story of your life. Um, several thousand years before, we have uh, the sort of earliest known um, texts on uh, spiritual matters called the Vedas. And the Vedas are considered texts called Shruti, or texts that are heard. And the way it worked was basically um, truths come uh, that have been heard by great rishis or sages or seers. And over time, through the development of the caste system, the Brahmin class or the priestly class would hear these truths and believe them. And then there would be all kinds of elaborate rituals that would be developed so that you could make sure that you kept the spirit of these truths moving through your life and through the culture. And this worked for a time. And after a while, people began to question whether just hearing something as the truth was enough to resolve the anguish that they felt in their own heart, or the dukkha, the suffering that one feels, or again, the deep questions that one has. So for example, a couple of thousand years ago, you would all be illiterate, and I would be a Brahmin, and um, we'd be practicing various rituals together, and you'd be secure in your story of the world being right and in harmony. And people started to question this, and a new form of uh, teaching showed up called the Upanishads, which is basically a series of teachings that question whether belief in these deities and rituals could actually solve the imbalances that we all feel in our own heart. And so what happened was a kind of counterculture developed where people would leave the organized forms of religion and the household, and they would wander off into the forest or into the plains around the Ganges River. And it was in this kind of climate that figures like the Buddha arrive, or the seminal teacher in uh, the yoga tradition, Patanjali, the attributed author of the Yoga Sutra, who was alive a couple of hundred years after the Buddha. And these are people who questioned whether these stories that seem to explain everything um, 
actually help us, they question this notion. And this means that we also have to engage in a practice where we can face the questions without uh, falling for uh, explanations that we've heard or other people's interpretations. And so this requires not only some courage, but it also requires some skill. Because if most of us go to sit still, and what we find in our own mind is not clarity of awareness, but a lot of distraction and voices chattering with all kinds of truths that most of us have never actually tested out. One of the features that I think um, characterizes the yoga tradition right from the start is this notion that there is nothing that is hidden. Oh, that's, that's the title for our talk. <laughs> nothing is hidden. Thank you. Nothing is hidden. This notion that there is nothing that is hiding. This is not how we think of spirituality most of the time. It's certainly not how we think about religion. Often we think religion describes things that are more supernatural, things more metaphysical, something that's hidden that we as of yet have not found, as if there is some place to look other than here. And I mean, aren't we doing this all the time in our search for the perfect vacation the perfect house, the perfect relationship, that there's something that is lacking in the here and now that exists outside of me. Or outside of this particular moment in time. Maybe there is actually a kind of escape we can create for ourselves so that we can leave time or leave the body. There's a wonderful uh, uh, passage that you see a lot in Quaker literature that says, um, there is another world, but it's this one. Obama said, we are the change we've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was uh, the same thing we were talking about. I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure I'm a Barack Obama fan, but I love the idea uh -huh. that we are the change we're waiting for. Mm -hmm. yeah. How does this relate to standing on your head? <laughs> How does this relate to watching your breath? How does this relate to your sticky mat? If we start to realize that we are actually projecting onto the world a lot of these stories, that humans are creating a lot of these narratives, 
that humans have created the different ideas of God or the different ideas of gods or the idea that there is no God or that the idea that there is a divinity or isn't a divinity or is a life after death or isn't a life after death when we see that all of that is actually constructed in language we also see that because the nature of our experience is constructed in linguistic terms that we have to begin from the human subjective perspective in order to start to look directly at the nature of reality. And one aspect of human experience that is always present is the breath. One aspect of human experience that is always present is the body. And because we perceive the world through the mind and body, the mind and body is a great place to start because it's always here. Well, your mind is almost always here, you know, but your body is always grounded. <laughs> and then we start to see that in the silence of meditation practice, in the awareness that we generate in our asana practice, in the patience that we cultivate in our practice, in the steadiness we cultivate in our practice, in the flexibility and openness in the mind and body that we cultivate in our yoga practice, we start to see that we don't need to look so far, that even being in the body is quite difficult. That most of the time we're in downward-facing dog and we're thinking about something completely different. Why are you looking somewhere else? What are you looking for? You know, right now in, I believe it's in Switzerland, some scientists are building something called an accelerator. So this take billions of dollars is going into creating this scientific experiment, which is a religious experiment, where they're trying to take the basic constituents of nature that we have, atoms, well, now they're called strings, but we haven't actually seen them, and we're trying to accelerate them and do so at such a speed that we can see what's underneath them. What's beyond atoms or strings? And you know that we're going to find something. And then we're going to have to create a new experiment so that we can find out what's underneath that. Or maybe you've renovated your kitchen six times. And now you're thinking about doing the seventh renovation. Or maybe you're on your ninth husband or whatever. And just to watch this tendency in the mind to want to fixate on some kind of external object, whether it's what we usually call a thing, like a stainless steel appliance, or a state of mind, or a story that will give us a sense of security and explain things. 
And what I'm suggesting, and what the yogis have suggested for a long time, that the kind of security we hope for in the stories that we project onto the natural world or the inner world are attempts to give us security but are ultimately fleeting because they're just stories. You're so excited to buy that car. How much energy goes into buying your car? And then you buy your car. And then it's just metal and rubber. And then another one comes out next year. Where does it stop? You see? So the materialism that we see in a physical sense also exists in a psychological sense. And what we mean by materialism in a psychological sense is the constant attempt to create a story about ourselves to give us a feeling that we exist. And it comes at the expense of not knowing. And the kind of bewilderment that actually gives us a deep sense of meaning and purpose, which is the irony or the paradox. And so we're saying pay attention to the in-breath. And then you notice that you can pay attention to like 30% of an in-breath. And then your mind is somewhere else, thinking about anything. The mind wants to hold on to anything it can. And over time, we say, after a few years of practice, we can actually stay with the breath. And there's some clarity in the mind. And then a few years of downward dog, and you enter into a posture, and the technique starts to fall away a little bit. And then you actually have an experience of sensations in the body. Not your idea of your body. My body is fat, my body is inflexible, my body is ill, my body is old, this is a practice for young people. But you actually start to experience sensation in the body. And then you realize, well, this is not actually happening in the body. This is just sensation that's materializing. Why does my mind have to say, oh, this is happening in a body, in my body. It's <laughs> happening in my body. Actually, if you pay attention to feeling sensations, they're not happening in a body. They're just happening. There's pain now. There's warmth now. There's temperature. And then you drop out of just the physiological sense of the posture and you start to see how thoughts are moving through awareness sensations move through awareness and if you don't have to fix that in terms of oh this is happening in my body then we start to see that what moves through awareness is just the natural world in the same way that sound comes and goes sensations in the body come and go. We don't say sound is happening inside my ear. Right? We say sound exists. Some of it's inside, some of it's outside. But it's outsideless of category. Sound is just sounding. 
The wall right now is walling. The floor is flooring. Sensations arise and pass away. They're impermanent, contingent, highly provisional. But the mind can't handle that. So it says, oh, those are my sensations happening in my body. You know, it is my yoga practice on my yoga mat. I'm really spiritual. Or something. Somehow this is spiritual. Is it possible to practice in a way that's deeper than your opinion about everything? And at some level, the mind doesn't want the asana practice to be psychological. See, at some level, we want to maintain this virtual reality where we can go around knowing everything about everything. There's a beautiful story in the Chan tradition about a woman who is a nun who's practicing for many years in a monastery in China. And um, she, uh, she enters into a period of great doubt about the practice. Great bewilderment. And she begins to wonder whether all this form is actually useful the bowing and the chanting and the sitting for hours and hours watching her breath. And so she goes to the head abbess and says, I, I'm not sure if the form is really giving me what I need in this practice, which is freedom. Freedom from all these constructs in my mind that give me anguish. And the abbess says, well, maybe you should take some time and go into the mountains and just walk and just practice being in the world. And so she does. She leaves gracefully. And uh, she starts walking the mountain paths in China. Have you ever been to China? Women there can carry loads, huge loads, balanced in the most creative ways, walking these thin paths over rocks and little bridges. And, and, and this woman was walking up through the mountains, and these other women, much older than her, were walking past with these huge loads. And then she sees a woman who was earlier in her life um, a nun at the monastery where she was. And she stops her and says, Oh, I haven't seen you for some time. And the woman says, who's carrying the load, How is your practice going? She says, well, I'm out here because um, I don't know my own true nature. And so the woman says, oh, so you're walking now. She says, oh, yes, um, because I don't know my own true nature. How do I bring suffering to an end? How do I bring, have you ever asked this question? <laughs> How do I bring suffering to an end? And so the old woman takes the load off of her back and just puts it on the ground. Oh. Typical of good Zen stories, that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs>
So in a way, suffering is basically a burden that we carry. And this is such a wonderful um, teaching because there's no words. There's no metaphor even. She just takes the load and puts it down. So what's your load? What's your load? And, And the yogis and yoginis are suggesting to us that your load is not what you think it is. Your load is not your chores at home. The laundry piles and the teenagers and the bills, that's not the load. The load is what your mind is doing with that experience. That's the load that you're carrying around. So what's your load? What are you carrying around? And from an existential perspective, which is what we began speaking about this evening, um, your theology and your metaphysics and your philosophy and your ideology actually get in the way They can actually be a great hindrance to having contact with what is. And at some level we also might say, oh well, I don't have a theology. Which sometimes is our theology too. But the point is from a psychological perspective that our theology is the hidden assumptions we have about ourselves and other people. Because all day long, we're just putting all of our experiencing experiences into this great film about ourselves. And then we expect everything to go a certain way, because we know how the film's going to end, or we think we know how the film's going to end. And then it doesn't. You lose your job, or you lose your health, or you lose the somebody who's the closest to you, and then things start to fall apart. Because you begin to see how you've been defining yourself through these narratives. And then we see where they don't work. And what's frustrating about yoga is we're not giving you a new narrative to work with. We're not saying anything's hidden. Nothing's hidden. Stop looking around. So you enter into Navasana. Do you know that pose? Or you enter into Trikonasana. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then you start feeling sensation in the body. And then the mind comes and says, oh no. But it doesn't actually say, oh no. It just starts thinking about something else. And then you realize you can't even be there with the feeling in your own body. And so in our yoga practice, in the physical practice, 
we are basically trying to wake up the intelligence of the body. So all those pools of energy that have been kind of coming to a halt over time get woken up. And all physiological holding patterns also have psychological holding patterns built into them. You can't explore physiology without psychology. You can't explore psychology without physiology. So you start to see that your deeper holding patterns, the emotions in the body, also have a lot of stories in them. And also the stories you have about things are rooted in deep physiological patterns as well. These are called in Sanskrit the vasanas. Vasana means like deep impressions. And the vasanas are intertwined psychological, physiological, and cultural and ancestral patterns, ancient patterns. And in yoga, we're learning how to become intimate with those patterns. There's a story about a seeker who is trying to understand how to practice yoga. Or, in this case, there's different versions. There's a Sufi version of the story, and there's also a Taoist version of the story, and a Zen story. How to practice the Tao. How to enter the way. Some of us have this experience in yoga too, right? Where you come to a, a talk like this, maybe. Uh, well, not this one, but another one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you hear about all these paths of yoga. There's like karma yoga and jnana yoga, hatha yoga, ashtanga yoga, bhakti yoga, yoga of valentines, yoga of devotion. And we say, oh my God, like, I'm however old I am. How do I start now? I haven't got time to learn Sanskrit and do all this. How do I enter this practice? Where do I start? So this person goes to see a teacher, and the teacher is standing by uh, on a road with a ditch uh, next to the road with water trickling through it. You can picture this happening in some rural setting somewhere in Wisconsin. Snow is melting. And the teacher says, or the student says, how do I enter the way? How do I enter the way? And the teacher says, Do you hear the stream in the ditch just trickling? The student says, Yes, I hear the water flowing in the ditch. And the teacher says, Enter there. <laughs> or we would say now, Enter here. Do you hear the fan? Enter here. Enter there. When you're taking the arm overhead, external rotation, internal rotation, there's a lot of feeling there. You just enter there. That's the whole path. is encapsulated in present experience. What else are you looking for? Mine says, oh no, it's got to be something 
supernatural. Nothing's hidden. Just enter here. Put your mind at ease. And then we try to do this, but we see that there's a tremendous momentum <laughs> of distraction. It's like even as I'm talking, maybe you're listening for five minutes and then you're off. <laughs> you know? And I don't know, this is good, but Barack Obama, isn't that more important right now? <laughs> So enter here. And this is why we practice. We practice so we can begin to use the form to help us develop the skill of being able to work with the habits of mind and body. Because those habits not only have momentum, but we also see that um, we can plant new patterns that then actually create a different kind of momentum. And instead of planting patterns of greed, we start planting patterns of generosity to neutralize greed. Instead of being caught up in the same old thoughts we have about ourselves, we start practicing deep listening. listening to the body. Gandhi said something so radical. He said, when I'm not hungry, I don't eat. Mm-hmm. Have you ever practiced this? If I'm not hungry, I don't eat. When someone asked Gandhi to explain apadigraha, which is translated as being greedy or being acquisitive. Gandhi said, oh, apadigraha, that is asteya, that's stealing. That multiplying, how he defines apadigraha is multiplying our wants is the most profound form of stealing. Multiplying our wants, our desires. Because they're endless. And hopefully this is something that will start to happen to you as you practice. As you start to realize that your desire, your anger, your greed, your envy, your thoughts are endless. They're hungry, but they're insatiable. And so there's no way that you can ever satisfy your desire. There's no way that you can ever completely satisfy your greed. You can't satisfy it. It's a, it's a natural state of mind. In the same way that sadness is a natural state of mind. In the same way that the water is trickling in the ditch. 
natural phenomena. The problem is how we feed it. The problem is how we act on it. So what kind of body do you want to relate to? So when I say body, I mean look really carefully at your body. Your body is made of how much water? 70%? What's the name of the river here? So tell me about the Fox River. It's toxic. Your body is 72% water. What you put in that river is what you put into your body. One of the things we know about water is all water eventually comes together and comes apart. That's your body. The Fox River is your body. You say, oh no, my body just exists here. It has no connection with any other water. Or the earthiness of this body has no connection with the earth. I live in my car. (laughs) Well, what's that made out of? And then you start to gain some insight into interdependence because in that moment you are not so caught up in greed, in self-centeredness. And you walk out of your yoga class down the hill and you look at that river and you see that that's you. Before your mind comes in and makes all the separation. Oh, that's not me. I'm here. That's the river over there. What was Michael talking about? And then you get back in your car. In your bubble. Which is made of water. In Michael Pollan's beautiful book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He has this scene where he walks into a supermarket. Has anybody read this book? Omnivore's Dilemma? I highly recommend it. He walks into a supermarket and um, he goes to buy some corn. And then he realizes that um, everything in his basket is made of corn. In his milk, he goes through his entire basket and everything is made of corn. And then he describes what his basket's made of. And it has corn in it. And the adhesive that glues the tiles together in the supermarket has corn in it. And so does the drywall. And so do all the parts of his car, which he lists in great detail, and all the elements of corn that go into his car. And it's one of these moments where he's trying to capture interdependence. So the kind of actions that you take determine the kind of mind state that you have. Is it going to be tender or is it going to be competitive? 
But when you plant those states of mind and body, you're planting the culture because you are culture, right? Your culture. Oh no, there's me and then there's the culture. <laughs> Your counterculture that you think you're in is part of the culture. Well, we're the people in Green Bay who come to Kathleen's place. Like we're not, we're not doing that to the Fox River. <laughs> Your body is the body body politic. There's no separation. And so this is where your yoga practice begins, Catherine. Any thoughts or comments before we continue? Any anger arising, jealousy, competitiveness, envy, greed, delusion, <laughs> sadness, depression, thirst? Is there anything I've said that needs some clarification? We're a shy group, aren't we? I guess uh, great doubt, great awakening. We started off with that. Yeah. And. Um, Sometimes I think it can be a blessing and it can be a curse. Mm -hmm. And I've often envied people that don't seem to have great doubt. Because mm -hmm. they seem more peaceful <laughs> than somebody that has mm -hmm. doubt and struggles, and yet that might be the root of awakening. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Um. I mean, this, this passage, this little homily, is really clear that the depth of your doubt is related to the depth of your awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. Um, we don't want doubt, we want faith. What if our faith is actually the faith to have doubt? The faith to allow the existential uh, depth of some of these questions to burst through our body so that we can hold the questions, so that we can look really deeply and maybe learn something. There's a Zen teacher named Bernie Glassman who recently uh, disrobed and um, he um, is focused on taking groups of people to Auschwitz to do sitting meditation retreats, which he calls uh, bearing witness. Someone asked him recently, um, why are you going to Auschwitz? Like, What motivates this? And he said, you know, I started thinking about the Holocaust 
And I realized I had all kinds of ideas about uh, why this happened from my Buddhist training, um, from my Jewish background, all kinds of ideas about this. Then one day I realized I had no idea how something like this could ever happen. How could something like this happen? How could the Holocaust have happened? How is that possible? And then he said, so I decided I had to go there and learn. I had to go and learn. This is not an attitude we hear very much. Where you see a troubled place in the world, and our first reaction is, how can we bear witness to this? How can we learn something here? before we just go and take action and be missionaries. How can we learn the complexity of what's happening here? We go down to the Fox River and we just look really deeply without blame so that we can see the complexity of the reality of the state of the Fox River. And what that usually means is we also see our part. Blame's not so easy. And in that place of bearing witness, we can really learn something. But it might not be what we thought. Like Dogen says, do you think that when enlightenment happens, you will say, oh, enlightenment, just like I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think what I'm trying to tease out of this notion of great doubt or great bewilderment is being able to really open to these questions that motivate our actions during the day. Even just your daily actions. One of the things that we know about our actions is that they're determined by our intentions. Most of which are unconscious, right? And one of the things we know about our intention is that it's motivated by our belief system. And one of the things we know about our belief system is that it's totally motivated and determined by our self-image. So your self-image is operating in large ways behind the scenes. In cognitive psychology, we call that cognitive dissonance. Is when your action in the world, or the consequence of your action in the world doesn't match up to your self-image. So then you have to modify your self-image or modify your actions. Most people choose to modify their actions to preserve their self-image. Let me give you an example of this. If you don't know the lingo, um, this probably happened to you this week. Uh, Somebody says something to you that you didn't want to hear. Has this happened to anybody? It always happens around February 14th. (laughs) Somebody says something you don't want to hear. 
and um, it's about you, and it's a, it, it, it affects your self-image. And the f- so and when this happens, when self-image is affected, we split in two different directions. One direction is self-blame. And the other direction is external blame. So the ego can't really take, the self-image can't really take. It's not built this way. It can't take a challenge to itself because it created itself. You see? You've created it. And so it has to split and either blame the other person. What, you think I'm like that? (laughs) You should see yourself, you know, whatever. Or, oh my God, I'm totally like that and my whole life I've been like that and then you go start paying your therapist money to talk about it. And the only way you can work with um, strong self-image or skewed self-image, like people who are dominated by self-judgment, the only way you can work with self-image is to know what your self-image is now, to see, your, to see the self-image. And the only way to see the self-image is to be still and to listen. And most of the time, we can't be still enough to look in our own mind and see how our self-image is operating. Because most of us are working at a, at a different level of cognition, where we're just identified with our thoughts all the time. And so we're just in our idea about everything that's happening. Right? And so we can't actually contact what we really feel. And so all these practices, like the yamas, the niyamas, asana, the physical postures, the breathing practices, the meditation practices, are all interrelated limbs that are designed that are designed to foster awareness. What we mean by awareness is the, the stillness through which we can see what's actually occurring, not just our theories about what's happening all the time, about who you are, why you're doing what you're doing, whether it's the Holocaust or whether it's uh, Afghanistan or whether it's your own family or your own body. Yoga suggests this is happening even at the level of your body. And I gave the example of even saying you have a body. For those of you that are meditators, you know, try this in the meditation practice. Like try seeing if you can experience sensations without saying to yourself what's happening in the body. Just let sensations occur. Why do you have to have a body that they're having? There's no body there. It's just sensations happening. Some level that, that freaks out the self-image because you just interrupted it. And there's lots of tricks you can do like this. Like choose somebody in your life who, you know, 
you're having a hard time with right now. And really try and practice compassion towards them. Are you crazy? But they just did. And you're partly practicing compassion toward them just to screw up the story you've got. Just to give the story a break. Because you might have more of a part in the conflict than you might think as well. Any questions? I, I hope I've responded a little bit to what you said. <laughs> so we're saying, like, put the load down. Let put the story be written and stop writing. Uh-huh. And um, uh, probably tomorrow or on Sunday, I'm going to pick up this theme again because what I want to talk about as well is um, how this impacts um, relationship. What this really means for the quality of our relationship with each other, with the natural world. Um, How great bewilderment um, fosters intimacy. Even though it's a bit scary, because it means dropping into some of these questions we have. And sometimes I think that this is basically what Freud was trying to do with his um, model of free association, was to be able to just allow people to just ask the questions. You know, some of us, especially where we're really fixed about how something is or how something should be. We have these questions about it, but we don't ever really let ourselves go deep into those questions because we're scared it's going to mess up the whole thing. And then those questions are operating in the background and they grow big claws. But again, we're not just talking about personal questions, which is usually how our mind hears this. We're also talking about the great question of being here. And what the yogis are suggesting is that if you don't put your philosophy in front of those questions, then those questions become meaningful and they become fuel for your practice. And if you set those questions up in the context of an ideology, then you're always going to come up with an answer. And that the form your answers take can actually numb you to the profundity of those questions. And that's why the yogis were... Um, not turning to the Brahmin class 
and not turning to the Vedas, and not turning to the given, the shruti, the heard teachings of the time. They were turning to the breath. They were turning to trees. It's interesting when you read, which I've been doing lately, different people's biography of the Buddha, for example, you never hear anything about how he is like as a person. You can't get a sense of person. He's always described as being like something in the natural world. Sometimes he's like a river. Sometimes he is like a leaf. So can you walk down the hill and look into the Fox River and see yourself? Imperfect. Perfectly imperfect. And perfectly contingent. Because if it wasn't for that Fox River, you would not exist. Because you're made up of water. That's why we're standing on our heads. So if you think that yoga postures and meditation and ethics and listening and devotion are um, separate paths, then you're caught up in your idea about yoga. And yoga is always going to be bigger than your ideas about yoga. Yoga can't ever be what you think it is. Neither can your lover. You think you know your lover? Or your daughter? Or your father? Or your cat? Or your garden? Gardens sometimes protest if they think the gardener is getting inflated. (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a good gardener, I can just pull off the spinach, no problem. And then it doesn't come. Because it's also not mine. What do you think your body is? What do you think mind is? Wherever there's life, there's mind. The seasons come and they organize themselves without you. The breath organizes itself. You're completely useless. Your pattern of aging, which is unique to all of you, the rings in the tree, Have you ever cut open a tree and smelt the rings? That's mind. Where do those rings come from? How does the leaf know when to drop? How does the snow know how to melt? Wherever you look, there's life. And wherever you look into life, there's mind. And in human form, we call that mind, this whole process of cognition and thinking. But that mind exists everywhere in nature. 
And maybe over time, when you start thinking your mind is so special, you'll see that all those thoughts are just an aspect in human form of mind. It's everywhere. You can't even conceive that. Because as soon as you conceive it, you know it. And then you can't learn anything. Any other questions? Thoughts? It doesn't have to be, you know, special or cool. <laughs> so do you miss out one without the other? There are many people that just practice yoga and there are people that just meditate. Can you find fulfillment in one limb alone? There are some people who just grow tomatoes. How deeply can you enter the tomato? Are you intimate with the tomato? If and that's all you know, how can you know if you're not? Well, if you're not, you would be asking this question. <laughs> <laughs> So, the practice that we're exploring this weekend is not the best kind of practice. It's not the only kind of practice. It's not sacred. It's not holy. It's not special. There's nothing special about it. Um, but what we do is we use the technique to bring awareness up to a level where we really focus we really concentrate on what's happening in this experience. And it's very hard to do that because the mind wants to be somewhere else. Like maybe right now. Come back. The mind wants to be somewhere else. So we're learning how to work with the mind so we can pay attention. And um, there are many practices to do that. And what we're saying is pick one and find out what part of that practice you like and go into it. Find out why is this practice still happening after 3,000, 4,000 years? I mean, there must be something to it. And maybe for you there's not something to it. That's okay. But if you're starting to practice, you know, I highly recommend going for it because uh, you've already bought the car that you wanted. You already bought the house or you know you got the apartment in the best location or you've already had like a date with your person you've always loved or no I don't know whatever your story <laughs> is you know um, you've done it already. And again, this is what I'm trying to suggest about, the history of yoga is that there are people who are burnt out on the cultural presence. They're saying, okay, the culture is not going to give me 
dissatisfaction. I think there's sometimes a point in our life where culture, whether it's pop music or movies, brings us up. You know, it brings us up out of a kind of sleep, you know. But I think when practice starts to get deeper, um, some of these same um, media actually bring us down, you know. Because we turn to them hoping that they'll lift us out of something. And we forget in that process that there's nothing to lift us out of. There's no us to take us out of something because nothing's hidden. It's outsideless. It's insideless. There isn't like another place. Don't you want there to be another place? (laughs) So, even in the asana practice, we practice drishti, which you can translate as like not looking around so much. In every yoga pose, there's a place where you put the eyes. Tomorrow, as I'm talking you through yoga poses, you know, focus the eyes, listen to what I'm saying. Because you can easily just go through the poses like you're going through whatever else you're going through. All your patterns of distraction, which you probably have five or six favorite patterns of distraction, will all show up on your yoga mat. They'll show up everywhere, in every relationship, every place, your relationship to everything will show up. So we say, okay, on this special rectangle here, which is not special at all, (laughs) we're going to work skillfully with the frenzy and the desire without end so that we can actually arrive. You said there's no other place or other special oh. place, but what if there is a special place? Would you like to go to more than here? Yeah. You really do? Yeah. What do you do with that? I think, you know, Mike, my, my, I would respond with a question. And the question is, you know, what motivates us to want a, a special place? What's the motivation? What's the intention behind the question? What's the, what's the motivation behind the notion that um, we want a special place? And I mean, this is this is what yoga philosophy is all about. It's saying, you know, it's always saying to metaphysics, you know, what is the reason that you need to think that there is a god behind the tree? or that there are gods in the sky that will save you. Like, what does that do for you? So again, it brings us back to psychology in a way, doesn't it? It's like saying, you know, what is having that assumption doing for you? And can we also look at what it's like to not have that assumption? 
And it's not saying one's wrong. It's questioning what's behind the assumption that there could be another place. Why are we even asking that? And the question always comes back to the fact that something's lacking now. If there was contentment, you wouldn't be asking the question. (laughs) So there's some kind of discord or anguish that that motivates the question. Can't some other place fill that anguish so that you're not suffering there? And so then you found your other place and it's good. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You're saying it's supposed to be right here now, all the time? I think where I fall on the spectrum is with regard to great bewilderment, which is uh, why do we have to answer the question? It is or it isn't. It's up or it's down. It's inside or it's outside. It's mine, it's yours. What I'm saying is, what about the question? Just having the question operating all the time. I think last year when I was here, one of the things that I was talking about was about how you can turn your whole body into a question mark. Well, here we're saying it again. Every time he comes, he says this thing. Talk about Barack Obama. In some way, as you get older, now when your body kind of tends to look like a question. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying the question is enough. You know, having a psychotherapy practice, one of the things that often happens is someone sends their teenager to me to get fixed. (laughs) Would you just make her right? (laughs) And um, one of the things about young people is a lot of times what we... um, we, a lot of times we reduce some of the things going on for them to personal problems. And we really fail to see the existential uh, dimension of what's happening, the spiritual dimension of what's happening. Um, because, you know, a lot of times someone turns to pot or whatever because they, they want to have a connection with something greater than just the stories they're always telling about themselves. You know? It's easy to say, oh, it's an addiction, it's an escape. It's, but it's not like that for everybody. You know? I mean, why do young people turn to music, turn to, you know, a lot of times, you know, the questions get shut down. And when the questions get shut down, you can't shut anything down without symptoms. It's the theory of repression or suppression. And the culture or your parents or school or whatever is shutting the questions down from every side to keep you consuming what someone else has to offer. 
And then you're not struggling with the questions, which I think is actually a healthy human condition. And then symptoms appear. And then we see just young people with their symptoms. They're so distracted. And um, the answers are like sugar. You know, they give you a high for a while and they make you feel like everything's cool. But, you know, young people, they see through the sugar. Maybe they're consuming a lot of it, but they also see through it. They really do see through it. And um, so I think in many ways, um, we, we, we can't tolerate the question. And we could do more to tolerate the, the doubt. And again, the doubt that I'm talking about are, you know, is the, is the doubt that arises for all of us. And sometimes for some people it just takes the simple form of like, what, what should I do to make money that's ethical? Or, you know, how, 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 what work should I do that's satisfying? How can I serve others? These kinds of simple questions are big questions. You know, I can't drive every day past the Fox River without it starting to create questions. So let's not shut those questions down so fast. And we have a hard time tolerating that. And I mean, what you said is a, is a kind of perfect example of that. Yeah. I think the, what you were saying is questions. <clears throat> most of us mm-hmm. would probably say, I can't go past the Fox River without feeling angry. Mm-hmm. We might not necessarily um, discern that or describe that as a question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if you actually dropped into the anger, and felt that out a little bit. Uh, some questions will arise, but most of the time we just stop. I'm angry. <laughs> well, I think if you bring some breathing to the anger, uh, feeling expands in the body, and it's not just anger anymore. There's feeling, and there's intelligent questions can arise. There's lots underneath anger. But again, usually we're just in the... Aldous Huxley has this great term, symbol manipulator. He has this beautiful passage where, uh, written in the 30s, he says, um, you, you can't just read an essay about T.S. Eliot or study physics and, chem- or, and chemistry in order to educate the whole human being. That is only educating the symbol manipulator and leaves us consequently in a state of ignorance and ineptitude. <laughs> Overstated as always. <laughs> but the point is, is that we're almost always functioning as manipulating cultural symbols, language, and so on. And so a lot of us just say, oh, I'm anxious or I'm angry. And then it kind of just ends there. And we don't actually drop into it, because we can't. Because we can't be still. We can't or we don't know how. Both. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
we can't because we don't know how. Um, and we don't know how sometimes for simple reasons, you know, sugar and momentum and the momentum of sugar. <laughs> I think it's really difficult to, um, to exist in a question, to live a question. Mm-hmm. It's, it's easier um, often to choose something, mm-hmm. even if we don't believe in a choice, mm-hmm. than to live in this place of limbo, yeah. not knowing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And why is that? That's the question. (laughs) From a psychological perspective, we would say that um, the mechanism that gives rise to self-image, which we call the ahamkara, the eye maker, Mm -hmm. its sole function is to create stories about ourselves. And so if its sole function is to create a story, a story is always the pattern that meets a question. And so we're always operating from the, in the zone of storytelling, which is answering those questions, which prevents the questions. But actually, you all know that when there's some stillness in your life, um, you don't know so much. And maybe it doesn't look like a question in the way you think it's going to be a question, but there's more of a state of mind that's open to what's happening, which is what we mean by the the liver becoming a question mark. Maybe it changes shape a little bit. Um, What we mean by your life as a question is not walking around going, oh, what's that? What could this be? You know? It's, it's more the openness that comes where you're not trying to confirm everything, which is basically to have a view all the time, to always have a viewpoint in the community. Yeah. So if the function of the ego or the, what in Sanskrit we call the ahamkara, the eye-maker, the basic function of the eye-maker in the mind is basically to create stories of self-image, which has a function. Um, then that constant storytelling kills the openness of question, of contemplation. One of the things that's so beautiful about the word contemplation is it has the word temple in it. And contemplation is a state of mind where you don't need to find an answer to your questions. And that's the difference between contemplation and analysis. In analytical thinking, we always need an answer. You ask a question and you need an answer. And that's how our education system works. But in contemplative, in a contemplative life, there's openness, questions that come and go, but we don't have to answer them all. You walk through the woods and you don't know the names of anything.
start to see the connection then with more religious types of things. That's where your faith comes in, your trust comes in, you know, so that you're not constantly trying to find that answer. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Can you have the faith to move in the realm of bewilderment? Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of an uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. I mean, and that's not usually how we use the word faith, is it? No, it's not. But I guess that's kind of what it brought to mind. Yeah. The word in Sanskrit is shraddha. Yeah. It said you have to have five things. You have to have shraddha, which is the faith that comes through intimacy. Oh no, I don't have to do You have to have shraddha, you have to have virya, which is uh, enthusiasm. And you can only get enthusiasm from intimacy. It's kind of cool. And then you have to have smrti, which is in Pali sati, like the sati patna sutta. Uh, sutta on the establishment of mindfulness. You have to have mindfulness. This is in the Yoga Sutra. Um, and then you have to have prajna, wisdom. And you can only get wisdom if there's mindfulness. And then the fifth thing is samadhi, intimacy. And then you see that those five things are actually circular, right? And those five things have to be operating all the time. And intimacy is, I mean, not just intimacy between other people, but intimacy with yourself also? or It's the feeling that happens when you're quiet and open okay. that everything is uh, connected. Mm-hmm. You, you look at the Fox River and you don't say, here I am, there you are. You um, look into the eyes of someone close to you and there's just looking, receiving, gazing. Mm -hmm. Sorry, thank you. So why don't, these questions are getting good, I'm so glad. Um, Why don't we have a short break? Let's have a break, have some tea, and, um, and then uh, we'll come back and have uh, a little bit more time together, and then we'll call it a night. Okay? Mm-hmm.